Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. Um, so today, we're joined by Dr. Rulo, an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Molecular Medicine and Chemical Biology. Dr. Rulo started off his scientific career as an undergrad here at McMaster, where he studied biochemistry. He then completed his postdoctoral training under the supervision of Dr. David Spiegel's lab at Yale University, where he worked on developing a small molecule-based anti-cancer immunotherapy. Here, he discovered antibody-recruiting molecules that are capable of targeting metastatic cancers in vivo. His lab at Mac, focused on chemical immunology, is based at the McMaster Immunology Research Center. His current research focuses on developing synthetic molecules that are able to mediate the immune recognition of cancer and focuses on the interplay that chemistry has with cancer immunology. So hi, Dr. Rulo. Um, we're so um, happy you're able to find the time to talk to us today. And we want to start things off by, sorry, go ahead. No, it just is my pleasure. Yeah, we just want to start things off by getting to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So uh, would you be able to share with us uh, like a little bit about your journey into research and what your specific interests are and how you end up as a PI here at Mac? Sure. So, um, so as you said, it started off really at the, um, in the biochemistry program here at McMaster um, in, I think it was, I guess in 2000, um, I was born and raised in Hamilton. And so it made a lot of sense to to, you know, to come to McMaster. We had this great university so close to home. It was very, um, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I pursued biochemistry in those days and then was exposed to an area, an emerging area of chemistry called chemical biology uh, late in my degree um, and fell in love with that. And so, you know, without any real long-term plans or visions of, of academic research, I just kind of followed the path of what I was really interested in. Um, and so that, you know, and just kind of wanted to see where that adventure took me. And so I, I went off to University of Guelph, Waterloo. They had a, a joint grad program. I don't know if they still do, um, in chemical biology. And um, spent two years there where I worked on developing carbohydrate vaccines, uh, which was incredibly cool work. So you basically take carbohydrates off the surface of diseased cells and then, you know, modify them in a way to make them immunogenic, right? To elicit um, an antibody response. And so after that, went off to the University of Toronto for about five years to do a PhD in organic chemistry, um, where I developed um, a number of molecular probes. So these kind of molecules that give off a measurable response when the target analyte is present. And so we specifically were looking at classes of polysaccharide carbohydrate molecules. Um, one of them being heparin, you may know of this as, a, as an anticoagulant. So we developed molecules that could quantify concentrations, let's say of heparin in a clinical sample, okay, which had various applications in medicine. Um, and there I also got into an area of research that um, that focuses on developing chemistries that can be used directly in the body to modify biomolecules like proteins, carbohydrates, right? Um, and develop these, these chemistries that could be used to target a protein directly in your body with a molecular cargo of interest, okay? This could be a, re- a fluorescent reporter, 
Um, this could be an affinity handle to allow you to pull that out of a complex cellular um, um, matrix, right? You could convert that endogenous protein into a biosensor, so you could actually watch whatever it interacts with, for example. And then from there, as you mentioned, went off to Yale to do the postdoc for a few years, where I really got interested and involved in this interface of chemistry and immunology. Now, as a disclaimer, in undergrad, I actually took all of the immunology undergrad courses because I actually loved it. It was my favorite biology by far, but never thought that I was ever going to see immunology again. Um, and so, yeah, so while at the postdoc, um, there was an opportunity to actually come back to McMaster and, and, and do, you know, and to, and to start a research program um, that uses molecular and chemical techniques to redirect or reawaken the immune system, redirect it towards disease targets of interest, one major one of interest being cancer. And so that's where we find ourselves today. And so that's what the lab is, is really working on. I don't know if you wanted me to get into at this stage what the lab is really focused on, or if you want to talk a bit more about kind of the journey to this point, you, uh, you, you lead, you're in charge. Yeah, no, sounds good. Thank you for sharing a little bit about um, kind of how you ended up at Mac um, and your academic journey. I guess one thing we were wondering about is what made you really interested in studying bioorganic chemistry? Obviously, um, you know, you do have interest in immunology as well, but um, kind of what made you really love that field of science? I think I just loved the fact that there was kind of a set of principles, a set of concepts that could be applied to create novel entities that you could use to, to kind of probe and understand biological processes. I really enjoyed that science. Um, you know, when you, when you kind of understand the molecular toolbox at your disposal, it gives you a lot of control over what you can make and what you can test, what kind of hypotheses you can test, right? And sometimes those have direct applications for new therapeutic paradigms, right? New ways of targeting a disease. And so that's really one of the things that, that we're doing now is really developing these synthetic molecules that can selectively bridge parts of your immune system with parts of a cancer cell to kind of enforce. It's called enforcing proximity. So bringing them close together to, to modulate and enforce a recognition and response using these molecular tools that you learn in organic chemistry. Yeah, so it's a very integrated research program that draws on, you know, a few major disciplines across chemistry and immunology. So definitely, I think something that we want to get out of this podcast is that some of our listeners, I'm sure so many undergrads in science hate organic chemistry, but maybe they'll be compelled to like it a little bit more because I think a lot of what you do is literally um, applying it in vivo and like, like right. taking like the basic science and like, like making it translational. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for example... When I was, you know, when I first took calculus, um, I really, really didn't like it. And, and a big reason for that, as I got older, I realized it was because I didn't understand at the time how powerful it was, how useful it was. You know, now I love calculus, right? Um, and so I think the same thing goes for organic chemistry. I think that a lot of students at the time they're taking it don't really understand ex exactly what you can do with it you know, how, how powerful that subject can be. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think that it's definitely something that's worthwhile to, to learn more about and to really, you know, and this is really the responsibility of teachers of the courses to really 
help the student help convey to the students why this is important. You know, the big so what question, right? Um, and I think that that would bring a lot more passion to some of these some of these fields as opposed to, you know, only taking the course because it's a prerequisite for a certain program, right? There's no real passion there, and you know, it's it's easy to to kind of lose your your passion for pursuing that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that makes sense. And before yeah. before we get into some of your lives directions now, we also wanted to kind of uh, talk about so the work that you did during your master's and your PhD, um, it's kind of like a little bit different from like your labs focus now. Um, so how did your like your experiences like studying like polysaccharide based vaccines and um, like making synthetic chemical probes like how did that influence your career and research interest now? Yeah, say? that's a great question. And so, you know, essentially, you, you know, you learn skills and concepts and tools during these different experiences that you then, you know, can creatively apply to solve a problem of interest, right? And so, you know, when you understand, you know, the properties of, let's say, a polysaccharide, how to make them, how to analyze them, you know, you can take those tools and experiences and apply them to something that's not a polysaccharide, right? If I know how to modify a polysaccharide with, let's say, a certain amount, certain type of chemistry, right? It then puts me in a great position to maybe adapt a different kind of chemistry to modify that polysaccharide directly in your body, not in a test tube anymore. And now that suddenly has a lot of, you know, a completely different set of potentials, right? Now I can kind of control where it goes, when, for how long, what it does. You can do the same thing with things that aren't carbohydrates. Do you see how it kind of forms a, a network? Almost like a, like tree branches, right? So, you know, in my case, learning organic chemistry um, and chemical biology was kind of like forming a really stable trunk, right? And once you've got that stable trunk, those branches can go in so many diverse, interesting directions, right? So I think that students who have a passion for science, um, it's a big mistake to not, you know, get that solid foundation, that solid trunk and whatever the science is it doesn't have to be organic chemistry it could be several it could be genetics molecular biology there's a lot of awesome sciences out there right in fact you know more and more chemistry is integrating with molecular biology because there's a lot of really cool things that you can do in gene editing and and, and personalized medicine yeah um, i think it's like really important anyway in any type of science you do you can really see the integration between different disciplines and different fields and like to be able to excel in one field, you need to be able to pull on resources from so many different areas of research. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, one, one more thing to add too is, I think that when a lot of students are taking science, I don't think that they're really aware of how many careers there really are in science. Um, there's, there's also kind of a bit of a, what's the word? Um, not miscommunication, but uh, oh, the word evades me, but you, um, a misconception that you know you get these degrees in science and then you're kind of stuck it's actually not true there's there's you know when you when you do a phd in science and you love it you're literally loving what you're doing every day there's not many jobs in the world that that do that you know and so you know you're happy in what you're doing you're excited every morning you know um and that inevitably leads to great careers because you know people with PhDs go off into big business they go off into law they go off into academia they go into pharma 
you know, and these are really great stable positions. Um, and so I just think there's a mis misunderstanding at the undergraduate level about just how awesome if you if you like science, if you don't like science, then you know you you want to go in a different direction. But if you like science, you know it's something that I think students need to be aware of just how much potential there is and job opportunities there are in science. You know, um, and you know even you know a faculty position for is one of them. And you know one of the great things about faculty is that you're you're literally your job is to literally be creative every day and do what you like doing. You know and you have a lot of time flexibility, right? Which is great if you want to have a family and things like that. So there's just so many great um, career options that come from having a really solid performance in science. Just to, to speak to that a little bit before, before we start talking a little bit about your focus now, do you, is there anything that you wish you had done differently or um, is there anything, anything that you want to do in addition to what you're doing now, maybe? Um, yeah, you'll you'll notice that you you you'll notice that you need to ask me like one question at a time because if you ask me three together, I <laughs> completely forget what the other two were. So, um, yeah. So, in terms of um, in terms of what I would other things that I might like to do. Um, well, we are definitely pursuing kind of a translational side of science where we're actually working to start companies that come out of McMaster, as well as publish papers and contribute to science, um, you know, towards developing actual therapeutics through these company ventures. And so what's really cool about that is that you can actually affect, affect change directly on the ground level. And there's not a lot of jobs that let you do that. You know, you can be completely instrumental in coming up with a new type of drug for cancer, you know, that comes out of your lab. And it also is super exciting for students because they can be a part of this process. They get great experience and they also have job security. They can actually work in these companies, you know, that they helped found as students. So there's a lot of great things that come from it. And so that's one of the things that we're doing. So you might want to call it commercialization, right? So there's a business aspect there. It's not just pure science, right? So that's one of the things that we're doing in addition to being a fundamental chemical biology or chemical immunology. Would I have done anything differently? I don't actually think I would have. I'm pretty, I was pretty happy with, um, with the route. Again, you know, with me, it, there was never a really decisive goal. It was more about kind of following the path that made the most sense. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's not like that with everyone. There's people that, you know, from the time they're 10, I want to be an astronaut. You know, for me, it wasn't really like that. It was kind of moving by moving towards what you liked and away from what you didn't and then see where you end up, right? Um, other careers that I would have liked, well, I, I always liked music quite a bit. Um, so I wouldn't have minded to be a composer for let's say music movie scores, things like that, or be in a, in a movie orchestra. Um, I liked the idea of being a trial lawyer for a certain period of time too, but um, I never really went through with it because it's just a lot of reading case studies and memorizing. Um, and so memorizing was never a huge strength of mine, to be honest with you. Um, another reason why I like science is that kind of have these different kind of systematic pieces of logic that you can kind of piece together and manipulate and apply. So you don't have to remember too many things. You just have to understand the concepts and then you can use them, right? Um, yeah. 
I think that's all I have to say about that, to quote Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, um, it's definitely like when you look at science as a career, you it opens up so many doors with, you know, creativity and being able to use that creativity every day. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing a little about that. I think um, there needs to be some movies maybe on, on professors to maybe make it a bit more appealing. To, yeah. Uh, yeah, there really should be. I guess right? there isn't any movies though um, about academics and, and scientists. Like a, a Grey's Anatomy about PhD. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you did have. I mean, you did have movies like, like Dead Poets Society and Beautiful Mind, right? Which is kind of, um, but I guess those have a different kind of, don't have quite the same kind of Hollywood glory um, uh, about them. Yeah. Yeah, I guess like from the point of view of like students, it's hard to kind of see like the day to day of what really being a you can't romanticize it as easily as some of the other careers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, it's difficult, but I guess that's like part of the point of these podcasts is to showcase that career yeah. to undergrads and yeah. showcase the day to days of being a PI. Yeah, we didn't have that uh, when I was going through undergrad, right? So a lot of us didn't know what we were doing and why, right? Like I had no idea what biochemistry was for when I took it. You know yeah. what you can do with it. So yeah. these are great for, so communication's awesome. It's it's half the battle. Really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess moving a little bit more about what your lab specifically does. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the importance of using these synthetic molecules in cancer immunotherapy and why that's so up and coming these days. So, sorry, can you just break that break that down to the first part? What was the exact first part you were wondering about? Yeah, so I guess just the importance or significance of using synthetic molecules in cancer immunotherapy. Yeah, so, you know, traditional immunotherapies use um, biologics or cellular therapies, um, right? So engineering cells to target a tumor or expressing proteins that have specificity for a tumor and can recruit some immune machinery. Um, synthetics are really a, another kind of complementary class to add to this that, you know, everything has its own pros and cons, right? And so sometimes a synthetic might, might be able to, you know, to, to achieve something that a biologic or cell therapy wasn't able to achieve. Sometimes they're really powerful in combination, right? And this is, you know, this really hasn't been done before. So these are the, some of the things that we're kind of hypothesizing at this stage. Um, and so, yeah, so what our lab really does is develop ways to, as I mentioned earlier, um, kind of target certain components of the immune, of a natural immune response, and kind of target them to the, to the area of, of need or interest. You know, that doesn't solve every problem of tumor immunotherapy. There's a, right, there's a number of big challenges um, in tumor immunotherapy. But, you know, this is one of them, you know, being able to, to kind of get what you need to get to the right place and to, to keep it there. And also to, to understand how important are these, are these parameters, right? And so because we synthesize it, we can make these little molecular um, changes to really systematically address questions, right? How important is clearance rate of the drug, right? We can make, the, make drugs that have faster or slower clearance rates, for example. How important is binding affinity for the tumor? we can make the drug bind the tumor with higher or lower affinity. Do you know what I mean? Um, and small molecules can get into tight spaces a lot easier than really big 
molecules can. That's just kind of a logical thing, right? So that's kind of one example of, of how a small synthetic molecule might have a unique um, property to exploit for tumor immunotherapy compared to a big biologic or cell therapy, which by the way, both of those have been working great in a lot of contexts. I think what a lot of people don't fully appreciate about cancer is that even though it's one word, it's thousands of diseases, right? Even two patients with the same cancer can have completely different outcomes, right? It's very complicated. And so it really requires this multidisciplinary approach, I think, to, to, to really get a crack of a crack at really eradicating this. So, um, yeah, speaking of, because I guess you, you went a little bit into small molecule immunotherapy and like how your lab applies um, applies it to various types of cancers. So how did you get started with that type of work um, during your postdoc? And how did you, like, what was that like? And what was that experience like in uh, David Spiegel's lab? Oh, so, you know, it was a really, it was a really intellectually st stimulating experience. Um, very, you know, there was a lot of creativity, a lot of big ideas, a lot of testing high-risk items, right? And that's where we first kind of demonstrate that you could make a molecule bifunctional, so like a dumbbell that could bind to a protein on a cancer and bind to a natural antibody that's already in your blood for different reasons, right? And you could, you know, this, if you think about it as this dumbbell, this molecular bridge, bridging the antibody from your blood with the cancer, right? And anybody in immunology knows that when there's a lot of antibodies on a target, the immune system sees that as foreign, right? And so we were able to kind of synthetically modulate this immune recognition event, this immune response. These antibodies, we've got tons of them for a variety of reasons. These aren't therapeutic antibodies. They weren't designed to target a tumor. We use the chemical adapters to bring them there and hold them there, right? Um, and so, and, you know, and then that allowed for a very targeted immune killing of those cancer cells. Um, those were actually glioblastoma um, cell lines that we were doing them against which is a really, really terrible cancer. Um, and one that McMaster specializes in researching, actually. We've got the Singh lab here at McMaster, you guys may have heard of. And so um, that's what we did at that stage. And then when we started our group here at McMaster with such expertise in this area, you know, real bona fide clinical immunotherapists, right? Like Ali Ashkar, right? One lab, Bramson lab, right? So many of them, Mossman. Um, and so we thought, okay, we're in a great position here with real experts. We can bring these chemical tools to the front, integrate them with their expertise and generate something really new and promising. And so what we did when we came here was we, we did a couple things. One of the things we did was try to understand how the molecules that we designed in the postdoc actually worked and how to make them work better. And we found that being able to keep the antibodies at the cancer cell for longer really led to enhanced anti-tumor function. So our group, building on our chemical knowledge, developed ways to bring those antibodies to the cancer and keep them there longer. And so one of the things we did was use these types of covalent chemistry reactions that work in a biological environment. We've also started to look at things outside of antibodies that we can bring to the tumor, other useful parts of the immune response, like macrophages directly to involve the tumor. Um, you know, and, you know, ways that we can chemically activate these immune cells that may otherwise be anergic or sleepy towards the tumor, okay? Um, ways to chemically program CAR T cells 
to go after the tumor, right? So instead of engineering the T cell to recognize the tumor, you can engineer the T cell to recognize your molecular adapter that then bridges it with the tumor, right? There's a lot of cool ways to interface these chemical concepts with modern tumor immunotherapy. We can, you know, we can bring natural killer cells to the target using these adapters, right? Bind different activation receptors on the natural killer cell, right? So, you know, these are some of the things that we're doing. Uh, we're doing some work in combining oncolytic virus immunotherapy as well with these synthetic chemistry approaches. Um, a lot of cool things going on in parallel. Making multi-specifics, which is something that's difficult to do with biologics, have them recognize different targets on a tumor at the same time, right? We know that tumors like to evolve to shed a single antigen that a monotargeting therapy is going after, right? And then it no longer works. We develop approaches, you know, one of the advantages of, of, of small molecule synthesis is you can make the drug target different features simultaneously, right? Much more efficiently than you can with a biologic, right? So sort of in relevance to that, um, what would you say is like the biggest obstacle of applying these um, covalent immune recruiters in vivo? Like to say, if you wanted to recruit antibodies or natural killer cells, CAR T cells, um, are there significant obstacles in uh, like actually um, applying it to an in vivo system? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I should first mention that, you know, we're doing, we have a lot of chemical approaches that don't involve covalency, um, but in terms, but with regards to the ones that do, one of the things to be very careful of, and this goes with any covalent drug, is to make sure that it doesn't react with other proteins in the body, right? Because that can lead to, right, immune off-target effects, right, autoimmunity. Um, and so that's one thing you have to be very careful of, that the chemistry is selective. Um, I would say that's probably the biggest consideration using the covalent approach, is to make sure that you're not getting covalent reactions with other proteins. So if you want to think of the covalent reaction in this context, it's like you kind of lassoed a particular protein of interest using the covalent reaction, right? And you don't want to be lassoing other proteins at the same time. And then like, obviously those would lead to like side effects. And uh, that it, could. it could lead to side effects, right? And I should mention, you know, covalent drugs so this idea of small molecules that bind a target but stick there is not a new concept. And actually there's a number of drugs, FDA approved drugs, I'm not talking about immunotherapy anymore, mm -hmm. just small molecules that react covalently that are actually FDA approved and people don't realize that's actually how they work. And so one of the cool things about the covalency is that you can, you can develop a drug that has way, way higher potency and efficacy um, without having to do a lot of the drug optimization that happens in pharma to get a really potent drug, a drug that really binds your target with high affinity, it's called. So really bind it very well. That's not easy to accomplish. And that's why, you know, getting small molecules through to FDA approval or Health Canada approval can take 20 years. It takes a long time to get those small molecule drugs optimized. Right. So the covalency can save a lot of time there if it's done right. Right. So has you has your lab explored any of uh, sort of like in vivo applications of these small molecules yet? Yeah. So what we've been doing is we've oh yeah, what we've what we've been doing is um sorry about that. 
is, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Student. No worries, no worries. Say that one more time, sorry. I know, I, I want to know, has your lab explored any in vivo applications of these small molecules? Just yeah, so? actually, that's a great, that's a great question. We, you know, it, it took a little bit of time to get the infrastructure and the expertise required to do this, but we, we now have most tumor models that are being generated in the group, and we are dosing them with different therapeutics that we've designed and looking for tumor regression and immune cell infiltration. So this is really new stuff that we're doing, and we're excited to see what uh, what comes from it, how these things look, and and then we can evaluate what to do next to improve their function. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess, like speaking of the in vivo models, um, have you faced any difficulties in delivering this therapy, or any issues in the stability of these small molecules in an in vivo system? Um, so far, um, with the first class of reagents that we've that we've looked at, there there actually has been a problem with them breaking apart when you administer them. So hydrolyzing is the term, um, and so they you know this is a common thing that happens with with synthetics um, is that you can get chemical cleavage of the of the of the drug, and so it falls apart and then it's no longer functional, and so that happens with a certain half life. Right. And so when that, you know, when that happened, we made versions that were more stable to that cleavage, to that breaking apart. Um, so that was one problem that we that we encountered that we have been overcoming. And, you know, there's an analogous problem with biologic drugs that are proteins. Oftentimes they're chewed up by proteases in the body. Right. That synthetics are resistant to. So it's a different kind of degradation or metabolism. Right. So right. that's one thing you always have to worry about. Do you have to get the dosage right, right? So we found that low doses were much better than higher ones. You can imagine that whenever you need to give a lot of a drug, you increase the chances that it's now gonna start binding other things. That's why it's important to follow your prescription um, when, it's, when it tells you to take a certain dose, right? You don't want that therapeutic concentration um, to get too high. Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes sense. I hope you guys make a lot of progress, obviously. Yeah. I still hope to see those in the animal facility too. Yeah, um, yeah they're in there. They're there right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I kind of had a, so a question, what do you, what, what do you think that these small molecules that you work with, um, you think they could be applied to other diseases beyond cancer? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, for example. I was going to say, um, for example, I know one of the one of the sort of directions that you talk about, say, on your lab website is um, the designing of like molecular scaffolds that can be applied to um, cells that uh, like express surface antigens. And then you direct um, the body's own immune defenses to those cells. So uh, do you think like those systems could be potentially like like applied to other diseases as well? Absolutely. We we actually are. Um... We actually have the blueprints um, for strategies to redirect antibodies to neutralize various viral infections, you know, mm -hmm. with the same kind of concept of targeting, you know, hemagglutinin or spike protein or other features of the virus on the surface um, and promoting its clearance and blocking its, its viral entry. And we also have some interests in neurodegeneration. So getting these, you know, immune entities to actually clear um, aggregation prone peptides before the plaques formed or the toxic oligomers are formed. Yeah. So there's definitely, it's, it's very target tunable. 
um, in relation to that, I did, I did a little bit of stalking and I found um, a little bit of an article that you, I think you um, gave a little bit of a commentary on in the beginning of the pandemic, when you were talking about the applications of these to COVID um, and like exploring how they could be used, I guess, to enhance antibody responses to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like, like, do you think that that's like still a like something that, that um, is possible in the long term? Say when we're considering like, um, long-term protection against COVID and... Um... Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of great work has been done around the world with vaccine development um, and, and, and even some small molecule, you know, protease inhibitors. Um, I think that, you know, the world response has, you know, has addressed COVID very well. And I think that that's going to be in the, you know, in the past very soon. However, I think it's great to have new therapeutic modalities ready for the next virus or mutating virus that could come. So right now we're using we're using SARS-CoV-2 almost as like a, a model system. Mm -hmm. What we're really trying to do is to develop a, a prophylactic approach, for example, where you could, you know, chemically adapt all of your IgG, let's say, ahead of a flu season mm -hmm. to recognize these features before the virus ever infects you. Um, and because antibodies circulate for so long, it would be a very viable means of kind of having a prophylactic, not really drug, not really vaccine, right? Kind of a kind of an immunotherapy, really, um, against viral infections before the person was actually exposed. That could help to keep future pandemics um, under control. Because oftentimes, right by the time you know it's a problem, you know we're already behind the game. So so a, a prophylactic. Um, is a great strategy to use to combat future pandemics. Mm -hmm. uh, as you know, we have real specialists at Mac, like the Miller Lab, um, you know, who and the um, Zozing Lab, right? That um, that advocate for this development. And so we try, as you know, as chemical biologists, we try to contribute to where the disease specialists tell us are the most useful areas, and do things that are most therapeutically relevant which we can do because we're sitting beside specialists in these disease arenas. Mm -hmm. So it's a great place for a chemical biologist to be. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how many applications you can use these synthetic molecules for. And it's a lot of the times you don't really think about them like you. No, um, no you're right. And one thing you always have to be careful about in science is there's so many ideas but there's only so much resource and you need to be really strategic with how you focus, what you do when, right? Mm -hmm. How many things you take on at first, you don't want to. So there's a lot of like logistics involved in running an academic lab because you have to manage mm -hmm. different variables um, correctly. Yeah. How do you, how do you balance that? Like how, how do you kind of go about the process of deciding, you know, what project is the most valuable right now and what project yeah. there's the most time? It's a great question, and it, it brings about a very important part of this job, which is really strategy, right, and logistics. So people that like those board games and computer games, you know, that, that this job could be very fun for them because there's quite a bit of that. It's not all me drawing organic reactions on a board or immune receptors clustering, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, it really it's important to, to take breaks so that you have a clear head when you approach these types of things, number one. Um, and, you know, what I try to consider is a combination of what does the group want to do? Where's their passion? What can lead to publications and grant funding, right? Most efficiently. 
how can we get the student CVs, you know, strong, right, which helps their employment, helps the group get funding, right? Um, and so I think a lot about those things, you know, when entered, you know, it's not just about what do I think is cool, right? That's part of it, but it's also where is there a need, you know, versus what do people want to work on versus publication, grant, right? Because without, without funding, you don't have any fuel and everything runs out of gas, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to think a lot about that supply lines, right? How far can you can you pursue a certain direction before you run out of resources, mm -hmm. right? Can I get enough data to get the next round of supportive funding before going, you know, before losing all funding and having to stop a project, right? Student salaries, they need to be, right? You can't all of a sudden just stop paying um, students, right? So there's a lot that goes into it behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely a lot of things that I guess undergrads don't really think about when they're... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess going on to talk a little bit more about undergrad research, um, we wanted to ask you what the typical role of an undergrad looks like in your lab and what kind of projects they typically take on. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of that depends on how big and established the lab is when the undergraduate comes. In very established labs, there could be very senior people that will train an undergraduate in a specific set of skills. So an undergraduate would take on a specific part of a project and really learn a technique well, like let's say PCR or gels, right? SDS page, um, or how to use, you know, let's say a binding assay like ITC um, or biosensor binding assays to measure binding constants, right? Or how to synthesize molecules. You know, it really depends on the lab how established it is. In our particular lab, it works some way, somewhere like this where an undergraduate is paired with a more senior graduate student and really works to contribute um, data to the graduate student's main project in exchange for that student getting co-authorships early, right? And in doing so, that student also learns, picks up specific skill sets that serve them well if they decide to continue in research towards independence, right? In our lab, we try to encourage independence quite early and to, you know, sorry about that, and to get students, you know, really help them learn and get as strong as quickly as possible so that they can start driving their own independent project as soon as possible. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So, so sort of tied into that, is, is there anything that you look for when you're considering an applicant to your lab, either like an undergrad considering doing this in your lab or an undergrad who wants to um, consider grad school in your lab? Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the most important things I look for is what their what their passion is in the science, how much how much, you know, because it's oftentimes hard to discern between how much you want to do something or like something versus how much you like the idea of something. Right? Those are two very different things. And so helping students really work out how much of each of those is at play is important because you want to make sure that the students go in with their eyes open. Right, Students that are creative and have the ability to work well as a team is a huge thing that I look for because we're a very team-oriented lab. People help each other, right? Work together. You know, their ability to solve problems is key, right? Their ability to troubleshoot and 
and persevere when things are tough is a huge thing that we look for. Grades are important, but we don't necessarily, you know, count how many A pluses there are on a transcript or anything like that. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think that that's too useful. There's there's so many things that go into into grades and transcripts, right? So many variables. Yeah. So character is huge. That's a a huge part of what we look for, and passion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, good to know. A lot of, I guess, a lot of undergrads get caught in this idea that they think they need really high grades or um, a perfect CV to like get into labs. But it's good that like a lot of it really comes from like genuine passion and interest in the research field. Yeah, I think a lot of us feel that that's a much more important metric. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. There are some career trajectories that are very grades dependent, right? Um, and so. You know, but research is not one that's that's going to screen super heavily on that and only that. Yeah, mm -hmm. because it doesn't predict, you know, who will be the most, you know, contributing successful scientists very well, right? And like any selection, you get what you select for, right? So you have to be careful. Exactly. Yeah. For anyone that's ever run selections which for anyone that doesn't know is very common in molecular biology. Um, you have to always be careful when you set up a screen or a selection because you, <laughs> you know, if you're not careful, you'll get false positives or false negatives. Right? It's kind of a little analogy for you. <laughs> nice parallels. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Selection. Yeah. Um, I guess to tie off our podcast, um, what advice would you give undergrads who are interested in getting involved in research? And what would you tell them to, to do to kind of get their foot in the door? Um, I would say to to really read um, and get exposed to people that are in it for advice and really read about what your career opportunities can be, what's, you know, what you're going to face, what, you know, what kind of what your options are. But talk to people that are in it that you trust, um, you know, looking at it in social media and asking peers may not be the best way to do it. You should really ask people that are seasoned, that have been there for a while to really get informed. So get informed and really determine if you're passionate about it or not. Because that's really, I think, the biggest predictor for success and for you to be happy in that route. And ultimately, that's probably the most important thing is that you're happy in what you're doing every day, right? Yeah. Everything else kind of comes from that. Mm -hmm. Really good advice. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. I guess that um, ties up our podcast. So I just wanted to thank you again for um, trying to speak with us today. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Have a great yeah. holiday season, everyone.